Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 and 10 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God. Christmas means that you can't be a thinking person, you can't be an intellectual person, you can't be a wise person and form a philosophy of life without first asking yourself at some point, who is Jesus Christ? You need to look into it. If you're an intelligent person, if you're a wise person, you need to look into it. And so we're going to go into the Gospel of John today because John, in a sense, was Jesus's, one of his closest friends. Um, even Jesus had an inner circle. And uh, today we're going to focus on John's most conclusive point very early in this text, in this, in this book, verse 14, John says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory. He dwelled uh, among us, we have seen his glory. So there are three points, very simple points. Uh, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. First, we're going to look at the word. Jesus Christ is the word. What that means is your word is the clearest revelation of who you are. I mean, you can observe somebody, you can watch somebody from a distance, you can hear gossip or hear about somebody, you can ask somebody to ask that person, and they can come back and tell you. You can assume a lot of stuff about somebody, but nothing beats you actually approaching a person, asking a question, and hearing from them directly. There's nothing like a person's word. And the text here says Jesus Christ is the word of God. In verses 1 to 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. You know what that means? That means that you can learn all sorts of stuff about God. You can assume a lot about God. You can hear a lot about God. But to really know Him, one thing, you really can know Him. But to really know Him, you need to hear Him. You need to understand Him. You need to understand Jesus, and you can. That's what this text is about, that you can. Christmas means that God became a rational human being. He became so personal, he came down as a baby. He came as a baby. Mary, Mary was poor. Mary was illiterate. Mary was a marginalized woman, and yet even Mary could hold him. And if Mary can hold him, anybody can hold him. If Mary can touch him, anybody can touch him. Jesus Christ became accessible. That's the meaning of Christmas. The infinitely powerful became fragile, became personal, so that we can know him personally. We can touch him, you see. 
What that also means is that God spoke to us. Jesus Christ is the Word. God spoke to us. God spoke to us rationally. Now, the Word, that Word, uh, is uh, in the Greek, it's the word logos. It's where we get the word logic. Logos to the Greeks, it meant something more than just logic. It meant a logical reason for existence, a logical, the meaning to live, meaning for life. The ancient Greeks, in that post-Hellenistic age, they debated at a very philosophical level over and over this. What drives each person externally, but more importantly, what drives every person at their core? What is the thing that really keeps a person alive? What is the thing that really keeps a person going day by day? In other words, what am I living for? Why am I here? What is life about? And so the Greeks, they wanted to get at that underlying motivation, that underlying reason for why anybody would work for anything, why anybody would do anything, whether it's a little, minuscule, incremental decision in their life versus something macro-scale in their lives. The Greeks were very, very fascinated by what would drive a person to make any decision, to take any action. And ultimately, the answer, answer to the question, why am I here? What am I here for? Because if you could answer that question as to the function of your life, the reason for why you are here, what happens? You start to realize your true potential. You start to recognize your potential recognizing your potential is an inherently human thing. To find what you were really meant to be, to find what you were truly built for, to become everything you were supposed to be. And the reality was, in that age, the ancient Greeks had no answers. It was troubling. That's a very troubling thing because if you don't know why you're here, it causes lots of philosophical psychological, practical problems in your life. In fact, Frederick Nietzsche, later on, hundreds of years later, uh, in the 1800s, early 1900s, he said he knew that when there are no answers to these particular questions of human existence, it results in violence, immorality, he predicted even genocide. Because you absolutely cannot justify a good life when you do that. Why be good? And the funny thing is today, everyone is still trying to find answers to these questions, and there's still no answers. What's the point of loving somebody? Why would anybody want to live selflessly? We all have that problem. And so John's statement here is incredibly remarkable because what he's saying is when he says Jesus Christ is the word, he is that logos. He's saying in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What he's saying is that the answer came down. The answer is knowable, and he came to us. That means our search is over. That's what he's saying. Jesus is that logos. He is the answer. Jesus is the only true meaningful reason, the underlying reason why anybody would really need to live. And that answer is not a concept. It's not an ideal. It's not a philosophy. It's a person. And if it's a person, that means there's a relationship that you need. You can know him. And because he's a person, you can relate to him. You can be known by him. You can love him and be loved by him. You can serve him and be served by him. And what John is saying is, Christianity begins with Christ as our Logos. And so he answers those deep philosophical, 
psychological, existential, and practical needs that we have, those questions that we have, those questions that have existed since the moment you started thinking about what's the purpose of your life, those questions that you've been thinking about for ages and ages, eons and eons. But because it's about a relationship with Jesus and not a philosophy, there is actual power in your life. John is saying, if you know him, you would serve him, you would love him, you would desire to have access with him, and it would shape your life. So don't just seek abstract truth. Truth is real, and it's a person. It's in the person of Christ. Connect with Jesus, and if you do, he will become your priority, he will become your authority, and that's why we call him king. What's the true north of every decision you make? Because if it's not Jesus, if you're not living for his pleasure, if you're not living for his honor, if you're not living for his glory, then you will tirelessly work to manufacture your own logos, your own meaning, leading us to anxiety and anger and depression. And they're saying, scholars and commentators are saying that it is a phenomenal thing to see around the world in this godless generation, in this godless society, that we are more driven towards anxiety and guilt and anger and depression more so than any other time in the history of the world. Because think about this. If Jesus Christ is not your true north, you will become a slave to your image. You will become a slave to your uh, physiology. You will become a slave to your reputation. You will be a slave to your beauty and your pursuit of beauty. You will be a slave to your wealth, your career, your family, and your children. And society says today that that's good. You need to pursue these things. Society says you need, it's, it's okay to do that, to live for yourself, to feel good about yourself. In the 1980s, there was a movie called Point Break. There was a kind of a reversioned uh, a version of that movie that came out recently. But this one stars Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. And it's about this surfer, the surfer and his band of surfer friends, Patrick Swayze, he's wild. He lives a wild life. And he's a criminal. He resorts to robbing banks. It's a kind of like a, a social cause for him to do that, to take money away from the wealthy. And, and he's looking for meaning in his life, and that's why he's robbing banks. And he befriends this FBI agent who's got this conflict of interest because they're getting to know each other well, right? But he's looking for the ultimate thrill while looking for meaning in his life. The, the ultimate wave, he says. At the end, the FBI catches up to this man, and he's staring at the storm of the century, this giant wave, the ultimate wave. He's lost everything in his life. Jesus Christ being our word means that he is our reason for living, the reason why anybody would live. You've got to reason it out. You've got to argue it out because this man in this movie, there's nothing left to live for. And that's us. A lot of us today, we're living for the thrill, we're living for the moment, and now we're staring into the storm of the unknown. What will hold you? What will keep you steadfast? Jesus Christ is our word. It means that he is our meaning for existence. And because he is our word, John is saying you have to process it. It can't just be a feeling. You have to think it through. Because if he is true, the question is not whether or not do you feel it. Because there are lots of times when you won't feel it. 
The question is, is it true? Is it real? Because if it is, it will transform your life. Number two, the word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of who God is. He is our word. He is God's word. Hebrews chapter 1 says Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. His radiance, the Shekinah glory of God. In other words, the divine became utterly human. That means that the divine, the unkillable became killable. The indestructible became vulnerable and weak like a baby. God the high king has come down. You know why that's significant? If you've ever taken a psychology class in college, you learn about this, uh, this, this term, the diffusion of responsibility. What that means is somebody tries to mug you. Somebody mugs you in a dark alley, and you start crying out for help. Somebody attacks you in a dark place, uh, and you cry out for help. The diffusion of responsibility means that lights will start to come on when you cry out. The window shades move up. People actually even peek out, but no one comes down. No one comes down. Everyone assumes somebody else can take the responsibility. Everybody else assumes somebody else will take the responsibility. And as a result, no one helps. Nobody helps. Why? And the reason is because if you go down, if you come down, there's risk. There's risk of terror and violence and tragedy and death. No one wants to show up on the news, you see? But here it says that Jesus Christ, when he heard our cries, he came down. The king came down. And when he came down, he didn't come at the risk of terror and violence and tragedy and death, but at the cost of terror and violence and tragedy and death. He risked his own life, but he didn't just risk his own life. He paid with the price of his own life. And if it's true that God became flesh, that means that no one understands more than Jesus. It means he knew there will be risk. He knew there will be cost, a cost of saving his love, a cost of saving his bride, and yet he still paid it. Remember that movie Titanic? Everybody remembers Titanic. After the ship goes down, there's furniture everywhere floating around. And so Jack Dawson takes Rose and puts her on this, this kind of headboard of a bed, and she's floating, and he's trying to get up on it, to be saved, but he realizes that it only holds one person. So he makes sure that she's safe, holds her hand, and you see that look, that one very brief moment where you see the look on his face, and he knows this is going to be the end of him. He's not going to leave her. He's going to die. But he gladly pays the price. In eternity, God looks to Jesus and says, it's either you or them. Either they must die or you must die. Jesus Christ knew the cost. Suffering, humiliation, torture, death. And yet he said, I will die. I will go. He understands. That means that there's nothing that you've experienced that he hasn't experienced. It's why Isaiah chapter 9 says Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Why? Because he is our God, because he is our king, because the rescuer, the redeemer of the world, our healer, suffered in every way imaginable. He suffered grief. He suffered rejection. 
He suffered betrayal and injustice and torture and loss, bankruptcy and death. You've been betrayed? Jesus was betrayed by his best friends. He could be your best friend. Are you broke? Jesus Christ was broke. He was poor. He was homeless. He was stripped naked on the cross. Are you lonely? Jesus Christ was lonely. In Gethsemane, praying, and not a single friend. Everyone has fallen asleep, and he is totally and utterly alone and endured every suffering, every shame alone, and he died forsaking cosmically even by his own father. You know what that means? You can go to him. You can go to him with whatever you have, no matter where you are. Now, there are people in this room who says, yeah, that sounds good, but the thing is, I've been praying to him. I have been going to him, and he abandoned me when I was most in need. He never answered my prayers, and you know what? Jesus Christ experienced that too. He experienced being abandoned by God. At Gethsemane, he says, Father, take this cup from me, and yet he was rejected. He was turned down. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, and he was turned down. He was abandoned. He was left for dead. And because he experienced anything, that means we can go to him with everything. Because Jesus Christ experienced everything, that means we can go to him with anything. Christmas means that Jesus crossed every barrier to come to his people. And he suffered in every way to be there for you so you can go to him. He cares. He understands. The last point is that the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us so we could see his glory. Now, John could have used any word to teach that Jesus was with us. He could have said that Jesus Christ resided with his people. He lived with his people. He hung out with his people. But the word he used, it's the word dwell in the text that we read here, but the actual word in the Greek is that he tabernacled with his people. Jesus Christ tabernacled among us so that we can behold his glory, his kavod glory. Now, it's a very, this is a remarkable thing. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. What does that mean? For many people in this room, even today, just days away from Christmas, days away from being reminded, right, about Jesus, God, for a long time, has been in the periphery of our lives. There's this passage in 1 Samuel where the pregnant wife of this priest named Phineas, he was an evil priest, uh, this pregnant wife of Phineas, on one hand outside, the ark was being captured. The ark represented the presence of God. The ark was captured and taken away, so God resided in the periphery of these people. And this, here's this woman on the inside. She's in labor. She's about to give birth. And actually, she's about to die. In giving birth, she dies. But as she's dying, she recognizes that the ark has been captured. The glory of the Lord has departed from their people. And so in that moment, as her child is being born and she's dying, she names her child Ichabod. Now in the Hebrew, that's Ikavod, meaning there is no glory. We've lost the glory of God. So here's Moses on the mountain. Earlier in the Bible, Moses is on the mountain. 
And, God, and he approaches God and he says, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I cannot show you my glory. You won't make it through. You won't survive it. My glory, my beauty is so brilliant. My glory, my beauty is so bright. It's so powerful. It's so uh, overwhelming that you will die. You won't survive it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a tabernacle with these specifications. And there are barriers all over in the tabernacle. There are veils all over in the tabernacle. It was an opportunity for God to be able to connect with his people, to be near his people without overwhelming them with his glory, with his brilliant beauty to the point where they would all, be, they would all perish. And so he says, I want to be with you. Build this tabernacle. And there will be rituals and there will be, there'll be sacrifices. Every year the high priest will serve as a mediator. The tabernacle will serve as the house a shield for the glory of God would be built with these veils. And every year, you would offer sacrifices, but you had to be prepared. You had to be ready. You had to be cleansed. You have to pray because you're entering into the presence of the most holy, almighty God. It was lots of work. But when Jesus came, he was the ultimate prophet. He was the exact representative, the exact representation of this same radiance and glory, that overwhelming presence and radiance of God, Jesus Christ represented, the exact representation of God. And he says, we can behold that glory. There is no veil there is no curtain. There is no barrier. What does that mean? You can literally just reach out and touch. You can know him personally. You can behold him unmediated because he's the mediator. It's an amazing thing. And it's that word that John uses. He says he is tabernacled among us. That means two things. Number one, Jesus Christ is the end of religion. It's the end of religion as we know it. Because you're already accepted in Christ. Because you have a personal relationship with Jesus. There's no more working to try to earn God's favor because you can't. You know what religion is? Religion is I work, I serve, I have to give and pour out and work hard and serve hard and pray hard and do all these things to get God's attention, to give, uh, to get God's acceptance of me. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the end of temples. That's why we don't have temples. It's the end of, of tabernacles because Jesus Christ has come and tabernacled among us. You become the temple. You are the house. You see that? It's the end of sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus Christ, who is the temple, who resides in us, is the ultimate sacrifice. It's the end of priests. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate mediator between us and God. The mediator is the sacrifice. The mediator is the temple. The mediator tabernacled among his people. The mediator, the high king, is the great high priest. But it also means one other thing. Why wasn't Moses able to see God's glory? But why are we able to behold it? Moses, the great Moses, wasn't even able to. And the answer is, because of our sin. Because our sin, there's this infinite gap that uh, forms between us and God. And uh, I mean, anyone here who's ever been hurt deeply by anyone, you understand that when somebody hurts you, a gap forms. You, know, you can sit in the same room, 
sit in the same car. But when somebody has wronged you or hurt you deeply, to the extent to how deeply you've been hurt, you can't connect. A barrier starts to form between you and that person. The more you love the person, the more you've been hurt by that person, the greater that gap exists. And you know an apology is not enough. Apology is not enough, you see? And so, if you think about it, God, this ever-faithful, always-loving God, we trampled on Him. He's infinitely loved us, and yet we have infinitely rejected Him. We have hurt Him. We've distanced ourselves from Him. We never acknowledge Him. We run from Him. Something has to close this gap. There has to be justice. So you can't now, after having run from him, not acknowledged him, not thankful for him, hurting him, grieving him, uh, betraying him, you can't just walk into his presence and say, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's connect. You can't do that. There has to be justice. There's a price to pay if you do. And because of God's infinite love for his people and the infinite betrayal, there has to be justice. We pay with our lives. And so Jesus Christ had to come. Jesus Christ is the Shekinah glory of God, but he comes as a baby. And that means because he's a baby, he's safe. He's not, babies are never overwhelming. Because he's a baby, there's warmth. The brilliance will not overwhelm you. The heat will never overwhelm you. Because he comes as a baby, there's intimacy. There's a deep intimacy, a deep love. Anyone can come to him. When Jesus Christ was born, the angel said what? The angel said, peace on earth. You know why? Because that war is over between us and God. That gap has closed. How did it happen? Why do we get to behold the beautiful glory of God? On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, as he's dying, as he's suffering physically on the cross, yes, there was rejection from men. Yes, there was abandonment from his friends and all of his loved ones. Yes, he's suffering and bleeding out and choking and laboring and groaning and suffering, tortured. He looks up and he sees that the glory of the Lord has departed from him. And so he has become the ultimate Ichabod, no glory. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle, and yet the glory cloud of God has departed from him, in a sense. And on the cross, basically what he's saying is, because my center, my reason for living, my meaning and my existence, the center of everything that holds everything in the world together has departed from me. I'm being torn apart. Yes, I'm being torn apart in body, but now I'm being torn apart in soul, literally being ripped apart. And if Jesus was being ripped apart, and if God had departed from his own son, that means that heaven had been torn apart, you see? To say that you have forsaken me is to say that I am suffering the ultimate terror, the ultimate violence, the ultimate tragedy, the ultimate death. I am suffering hell on the cross because what is hell? Hell's separation from God, a cosmic separation from God. And so while the wrath of God is pouring out on Christ for the sake of his own people's sins, we are being reconciled to God. And so the gap has closed. The gap is closed. 
we can be intimate with God again. In fact, the holy temple curtain, as Jesus was dying, there was darkness in the land, and the holy temple curtain, that veil that separated God from his people so that his brilliant, beautiful glory will not overwhelm him. You see it from tearing apart from top to bottom. Religion is tearing it apart from bottom to top. When you tear from the bottom to top, you are doing the work to get in, to get access. But when Jesus died, it's as if God himself had taken that curtain, that veil, and tore it from top to bottom so that now there is access forever. We can behold his beauty and his brilliance and not be consumed. We have the glory, the kavod, Shekinah, beautiful glory, presence of God in our lives daily, moment by moment, I've lost in his love. Moment by moment, I've helped from above, you see, because Jesus Christ became the ultimate ikavod. There's no more veil. There's access for all. That means because the gap is closed, we're accepted. What's the root word of accepted? We have access. We have access. We don't like to go down. We don't like to go down because that means there's risk. We don't want to show up on the news, but the gospel, the king has come down, is good news. It's good news. Jesus Christ has paid the price with his own life for his people so that we could be redeemed. And so they say that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's no more gap because of our sin. We have access. Christmas is about the ultimate gift of access in Christ who paid the price for our sin that we deserved so that God and his presence, his beauty, his glory, his wisdom, his might, his power enters and it, it dwells in us. And so as we enter into Christmas, friends, remember Jesus. To know Jesus is to know God at his word. That means that we have access to the high king who has come down for us. If you trust him to the degree that you trust him, you will want to know him. You will love him. You will serve him. You will be with him forever. It's the most important thing. It is the priority and the authority king in our lives. Let's truly celebrate Christmas as we enter into the holidays. All of us are going to be on break. Let's truly enter in reflectively, just thinking about your year and how Jesus has sustained you persevered you because he lives in you. He dwells in you. God himself, the Almighty, dwells in you. Let's pray.